Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Okay, Think Fit, Be Fit. We have a lion's den of an episode today. We have a recap episode of season three for fitness for consumption, which includes our two co-hosts, Gigi and PJ. Hey, hello, everybody. <laughs> and a special guest calling in from Chicago, Michelle Amore of the infamous Precision Human Performance. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Nice to see you. Hi, Michelle. Thank you. You also. Hi. Nice to see you, Michelle. This this season, I obviously think is very special, and I've been telling everyone that for months now. So this is our time to like really show why each episode is special and important. And it's also, it was also an interesting season because we were really asking our audience to participate and participation uh, in the form of what they thought was the most difficult skill in sports. We heard multiple different takes uh, from my clients all the way to Dr. David Bame, and then some of our colleagues in different parts of the country chimed in. But now we're wrapping up with we're going to ask Michelle. Yeah, so I'll jump in Jen. So yeah, in the beginning of the season we mentioned that as we were going through the season we wanted to get some feedback from the audience and then we said at some point, you know, we would collect the responses and then at the end of the season we would choose one at random that we liked and bring that person on to discuss it with us. So that's exactly what we're doing. So we're lucky enough to have our esteemed colleague Michelle Amore. So Michelle we're going to put you on the spot here. So we asked you this question. Well, actually, let me take a step back. Before we ask you this question, can you uh, give our audience a little introduction and background on yourself? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, So I am currently in Chicago, as you mentioned. Um, I own a personal training studio and gym in the West Loop Mm -hmm. called Precision Human Performance. We've been Mm -hmm. open for a little over 11 years now. 
um, specializing in really looking at the body in a biomechanical view and breaking down everything into its smallest parts and then building it back up and mm-hmm. seeing how well we can make things perform. Um, I personally have multiple certifications from personal training certs to life coaching, precision nutrition. Um, and I am also an instructor. We have a company, an education company called Bioacademics. Mm-hmm. So I'm an instructor for bioacademics um, and just going around trying to do lectures, um, training a lot of different clients, working with different companies, consulting, um, and just trying to make the industry better and focused on lifelong health and fitness. Well, join the club because (laughs) that's our mission in a nutshell. So we're happy to have you here. 11 years, you've seen a lot of things over that time, you know, running this business, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, yes, as a business owner and a trainer. <laughs> well, and I can speak for our relationship. We've known each other for a while. And, um, you know, when I was at Cybex, I sort of called on you to do some background research for us. And you were very helpful that way. And so you have some experience doing research. And, and I think your perspective on all of this will be really interesting. So should we have at it? What do you say, yeah. Michelle? Let's, let's do it. Okay. All right. Lay it on us. All right. So, you know, I, I, when thinking about skills, um, I've played so many different sports, been in a lot of different um, events and whatnot. And there's one that stood out to me and it's rowing. And mm. just a little backstory, went to college and tried out for the soccer team, didn't make it. And I had this roommate that I didn't even know. And she's like, I'm going to try out for the crew team. No idea what crew was. Never heard of it. So I go and I try out and it's rowing. I was like, okay, this is no big deal. It's just rowing, right? I made the team and my coach said, you will be by the end of this season in the best shape of your entire life. And you will learn one of the most difficult skills out there in sports. Laughed it off. At the end of the season, she was so correct. The skill I feel is very intricate and detailed. Right, because we have this end goal of moving this gigantic structure through water fast. Now, I was in an eight boat, right? There's singles, doubles, mm-hmm. fours, and eights. My specialty was an eight. And does eight um, mean eight people in the in the boat? Yes, there okay. are eight people in the boat, and all eight people need to basically be one person, mm-hmm. right? We all need to be moving together the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the goal is to move this structure, move this boat through water as fast as possible. Okay. So in order to do that, you have to one, minimize the resistance from the drag of the water, the air, the boat, the riggers, the oars, all that that's in the boat mm-hmm. Two, you have to m- maximize your propulsion, right? Your propulsive force while in this boat, while you, you are that mechanical link between the foot plate that your feet are on and the oar itself, which the blade goes in the water and you have to pull it back. So all of those things you're dealing with, and in order to make that happen, there are four phases involved, right? There's the catch, which when you're fully flexed and reached out towards your feet, you have to Mm -hmm. dip the oar in the water, that's called the catch, and then you drive, right? You finish. And then there's a recovery, 
right? So those four phases, you have to perfect those and be efficient in those four phases of that row. Then you're holding on to an oar, right? So you got this thing in your hand that's anchored to the boat and you have to know in time when to turn it, which hand to turn it with, when to stick it in the water, how much to pull on, which hand pulls, which hand turns, and then when to pop it out of the water, how to flatten it, minimize its vertical position in order to minimize air drag mm -hmm. and repeat that movement, mm -hmm. right? So all of this in order to get a boat just to run smoothly on top of the water, mm -hmm. limit your up and down, maximize the acceleration, minimize, minimize the deceleration of the boat. Um, so in a nutshell, <laughs> that's why I think it's one of the most difficult skills. Awesome. Can I ask one follow-up question? How, um, sadly, uh, we had a, a guest on the season who's a friend of mine, who's actually the head coach of the Columbia men's rowing team. So I should know this by now, but I don't. So how long is a typical, when you're doing a crew race, what's the average length of a race? Is it the minutes? Distance? Yeah, or just how long does it take? I'm trying to figure out the endurance component. Oh, the timing of it. Like, yeah. how, would it take you 30 minutes, two minutes? Like, I just don't have a good sense of how long a crew race is. Well, the time depends on how great, how efficient the people in the boat are, but it's usually a 2000 meter race. Okay, how long should that take a good team? Um, I mean, people can do that in six minutes, six minutes, right? okay. five, six minutes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I think we were at about seven or so eight minutes is, is pretty long. Okay. And then how many times in an, in a competition will you have to do that? Like 10 times or three times or like how many once. times just once the whole, you just get one shot for a day. <laughs> No, yeah, I think you do it like a yo-yo repeat endurance test. Like you do 10 in a row. Well, just I just kidding. don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know <laughs> if it's like you qualify, if it's like sprint where you have to like qualify for the next stage and you do it again, but you're saying no, like when you show up, you just get that one race and that's it for the day. You do. Well, usually it's, so it's called a regatta, right? Usually in a regatta, there are multiple teams that you're rowing against. So you'll have a race at eight in the morning at nine o'clock, right? You'll have multiple races. And um, so each one of those will be around 2000 meters, depending on the river you're in. Um, it's give or take a few meters. So was it about 200 strokes? I think per race is what they're estimating. Well, um, if you're, if your stroke rate, if your typical stroke rate is somewhere around 30, right? I mean, world-class is what, 33? Mm -hmm. So if your stroke rate at a collegiate level is 30 and you're doing, you know, 30 strokes a minute for six minutes, you know, it's like 200 strokes close to, which is, that's a lot of strokes. All right. Yeah. So let, I me, get it let me ask a different question though, because we're still, you know, that's a, that's an endurance kind of like how wearing is this on your body? I was fascinated by all the elements that you had to manage that you described, which is, you know, when I think people think about rowing, like, okay, you put the oar in the water and you push with your legs and you pull with your arms and that's it. So obviously there's a tremendous amount of processing that has to go on with this that makes this a very complex thing. When you're in the boat racing, what part of that are you thinking about? 
I mean, if you had to think about this, so my analogy is, and I've said this in the past, let's say you're driving a car and you're coming up to a red light and you have to stop. If you had to think about, well, I need to get my foot off the gas pedal. So in order to do that, I've got to contract my hip flexors and contract my dorsiflexors. Then I have to adduct my leg in order to get my foot over the brake. And then I have to extend my hip and my knee and plantar flex and apply force. If you had to think about that while you were driving, you'd kill everybody in front of you, right? They would all die. So the question to you is, how much of that stuff do you think about when you're competing? None of it, some of it, all of it? Like, what is the process? Um, I think, so uh, a lot of this answer. Um, it's all should be automatic. The skill itself should be automatic. The time, the repetition and amount of time spent practicing is phenomenal. It's extraordinary. Um, if you ever read any rowing books, seen any rowing movies, I mean, you'll see how intense it is. And Boys every in the boat. Single, yeah, yes, it's so intense. Um, so by the time you get out on the water for a race, it's 100% automatic. However, we all have strengths and weaknesses, right? So there are certain things, certain parts of that skill that um, you might need to focus on as an individual. Like rowers aren't usually short people. They're tall. They're, they're smaller. Um, I'm what five, five. So I had to make up for, for the height of everyone else by the amount of power I produced in the boat and by perfecting my technique. Um, so I would always focus on the length of my, uh, recovery mm -hmm. and try to make it as long as possible. And then just to power back as much as possible. Um, because you know, the legs contribute almost 50% to that entire skill. Mm -hmm. So the legs are about 50, the trunk, I think is about 30% and the rest comes from the arms and shoulders. Uh, so to muscle it back with your arms, you're not going to get anywhere. So I had to think about the length and I had to think about my leg power. You know, what else is interesting is that, so a lot of what came up this season, when we spoke about skill acquisition are things like predictability timing. So like the classic example is hitting a baseball. And what's so difficult about hitting a baseball is the unpredictability of how a professional pitcher can make the ball move. And then the timing you have to have in order to be coincidental with getting your bat where you predict the ball is going to be. And so rowing, when you look at it on the surface, it seems very predictable, right? Like you're trying to like, if you could stereotype the same row each time, but when you talk about it in the context of a team and just where exactly like you mentioned, there's different biomechanics for different people the timing and predictability is a little bit less predictable. Like you have to work really hard just to maintain that predictability for every stroke for, and even though six minutes when you, you know, consider endurance sports, it's not considered endurance, but for 200 strokes, that's a lot to be able to like get that timing um, to be on time with everyone else's stroke. So yeah, it's interesting. Well, you do have a coxswain in the boat, so there is someone there to help set your cadence. And you know, I, I don't know exactly what kind of instruction is provided. I'm not that familiar with the sport, but that's the purpose of having someone there is to help to create a little bit more certainty around what you're doing. But I do think because of the individual dynamics, um, 
that occurs between the rowers, yeah, you sort of have to know what's going on around you, which is really fascinating, which makes it totally different from a single. You know, that's where I think the real skill comes in here is the fact that there are eight people that need to be synchronized as opposed to just a single person in the boat. Yes. And then, and their strategy to where you're placed in the boat as well. The coxswain mm-hmm. steers and dictates tempo and pace, but the stroke first person in the boat, which is where I usually sat, set the tempo, set the technique, and then the powers in the middle powers in the back. And, um, in order to maximize what's going on in the boat and, you know, Greg, to bring up the unpredictability um, issue, we're also on water. <laughs> right. Yeah. How predictable that body of water is when you're also rowing next to 10 other boats. So, that's yeah, yeah. That, that often got in our way. Yeah. Interesting point. So, one of the early things we brought up in the season is um, there's a taxonomy where you could sort of define what makes something more or less difficult. And, The stability of the surface is definitely one of them. Whether you have to manipulate an object is one of them. Whether your body is moving or not is one of them. So yeah, it it definitely fits. I wouldn't have thought about it in that way prior to having this conversation, which is exactly the reason we want to have these conversations. So it fits some of those criteria in ways I didn't think I wouldn't have thought of just on my own. You know, and that sort of is a great segue into our first episode of the season, um, which we entitled flick of the wrist. And so I think, you know, this is a great time to get into that because I can create that connection between the two. But Michelle, really, thank you so much for that, because it it opened my eyes to the complexities of something that I didn't see. And I think a lot of our listeners probably would not have considered when thinking about a sport like that. So that was really fascinating. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure as usual. The cool thing is, is, you know, think about these real life, you know, sport, like what we're doing in time in sports and, you know, how it applies to what we're doing with our clients and the difficulties of the tasks that we're asking them to do. And, you know, and then we're going to take the chance to kind of walk through this season and how that all comes together. So, yeah, thank you for contributing. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Michelle. We'll see you soon. All right. Take care. All right. That was pretty awesome to have such a superstar like Michelle. I mean, I think she is. Like, I just admire what she's been doing for the past decade and before that. So, Mm -hmm. but she also provided this like perfect opportunity for us to get into the season, which started with an episode titled the a flick of the wrist or the flick of a wrist. Just flick of the wrist. Flick of the wrist. Okay. Flick of the wrist. And it's funny because we were we were assuming that rowing would be kind of mundane, but we just got into it. It's not. How does that help us like get into you know more about like motor skill and you know what flick of the wrist is all about? Yeah, flick of the wrist actually came to me when I was driving cross country and we opened the episode with my discussion of what I was doing when I was driving from Massachusetts to California. And I had the car in, it's a car, it's an SUV. So it's this big, heavy thing that's driving down the road. 
and I had it in cruise control. And you would think putting it in cruise control makes it really easy. You just sit back and do nothing. And by the way, this was not the new systems now, which are auto steering, you know, parking. This is just cruise control. Uh, it's not even smart con cruise control. It's just cruise control. And um, cruise also, control. It's just cruise control. <laughs> so um, basically, when you think about it, how do you operate cruise control? You put your hand on the control level and you flick your wrist. It's a it's a flick of the wrist. But what I discovered is it's not just that. There's so much information that has to be processed while you're driving in cruise control. I mean, what if you're going along and then you're you're coming upon a car that's in the lane in front of you and you need to pass them? Well, you're in you're at a fixed velocity, right? So you can't just speed up when you're in cruise control. I mean, you can, but you have to flick the wrist again. What if there's a car coming up in the lane to, to the side of you? So there are all these things that you have to process. And that's where Michelle's description of rowing sort of really struck me that, no, you're not just putting the oar in the water and pulling on it. There are so many factors that go into executing that task in a synchronized way with all these other people and it's just, it was a great segue into this idea that skill is much more complicated than people think. Yeah. So this episode had a lot of, um, it felt like academic information. Like we could mm -hmm. uh, have a lot of glossary terms in this. And, you know, I felt like it was when we look at like the description of the entire show, Fitness for Consumption that you guys uh, promise to deliver like an understanding or a help us on help us listeners understand essential concepts all the way to these like highly complex things. And, you know, that this first episode, I felt like really, you know, did both of those things because it revealed that yes, skill is a tricky subject, not just to assume that we can just like understand it as trainers or coaches, but it also like gave us some like really like practical ideas about how it works in everyday life, like cruise control. And so I just kind of wanted to put it out there as like this, as a, as this first episode of the season, it, it's a really important one. And I'll, I personally will go back and listen to it again, even after today, I reviewed it a little bit. I think it's pretty hefty like episode. Yeah, it was sort of, um, this is like, uh, PJ, tell me if you disagree with this, but it was kind of like, uh, if you ever take motor learning in school, you know, that we kind of hit like the first four weeks of the syllabus. So these are, <laughs> we went over some of the essential concepts and not least of which was putting a definition on skill, because one of the hardest things when you've got a term that's used so commonly is that you know, we've spoken about this with the term functional or holistic or something, you know, we all kind of know what you're talking about, but also not exactly like people can have other. So, and just to, to put it out there again, so the way we define skill, which the way it's typically defined in motor learning literature is, first of all, it's got to be a voluntary movement, which is different than a reflex. So a voluntary movement that you can do under a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. So all of those things go into something skillful. And so well, you're missing one very important component okay. what to that definition forget? there, Gigi, which is 
achieving your goal. Oh yeah. And then yeah, actually <laughs> so consistently that, achieving. Yeah. yeah so right. you can be economical and you can do it in a variety of ways, but if you keep missing the target, then it's not skill. So very fair point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly so right. skill, right. Is achieving your goal mm-hmm. consistently under a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. And that pretty much set the stage mm. for the entire season. You mentioned a word there too, Gigi, which functional and and one of the reasons why we wanted to take on skill as a concept for the season was everybody talks about functional but functional implies that there's some underlying skill that has to be developed mm-hmm. and so we can help people be functional but if we're not improving their ability to perform skills then how functional can they be so to really get to the root of functional training we need to understand what skill is and the components of skill and how we have to think about them in order to apply that in a practical setting. Yep. So we went over um, different types of skills, things open versus closed skills, which has a lot to do with the predictability of a, of a given skill and how that your timing is affected by whether you've got to interact with something that's moving towards you or not, or you get to, you know, the timing is based solely on your intention to move. Um, we spoke about things like cognitive load, which comes up a lot in the season. We went over a well-known taxonomy, um, which is by Anne Gentile, which describes different ways you can start parsing out what makes a skill more difficult, what makes one skill more difficult than something else. And we're looking at things like the surface that it's performed on, whether your body's moving or not, whether you have to uh, uh, manipulate an object or not. So we went over some of the the essential components of motor learning 101. It confirmed one of my instincts about that I have when I'm driving is I am so scared of cruise control. I don't want anything to do with it. And, and, and here, yeah, so. Why exactly? I, yeah, the, I mean, I think the term velocity comes to mind. Um, it's, it to me, I would rather be in the, in the element of driving than push a button. Gotcha. Like I, I want to be aroused. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put a pin in that because we talk <laughs> yeah. about that later. The, you know, the whole thought, the whole thought process here and what we're trying to get across in this first episode is that when we're discussing skill, it goes much deeper than what movement are you doing? And it really gets into the concept of information processing and cognition. If we don't start to tap into that, if we don't understand all of the things that are influencing our decision-making, then we're really missing the point because that's where skill begins with gathering information, gathering appropriate information and using that to make a decision. That's what skill boils down to. And we're too focused on movement. We're too focused on replicating motion. We're too focused on mimicking activity without fully understanding how information processing, how the demands of cognitive load change all of those things. So you could be doing the most complicated movement sequence, but if you haven't factored in what information people have to process and how, 
then you're not going to make a dent in their uh, ability to perform that. And so that's really what this tees up and gets into basically everything else that we talk about in the season. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's a, I don't want to add anything to that, right? Because you need to listen to this episode. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then we have our second episode, which is titled Speed Bumps. And this is another conversation with Dave Bame, who, um, I, you know, I, I thought this episode was just, I thought it was fun. It was surprising. Uh, and it was also really interesting because there were a lot of practical ideas uh, tossed back and forth between you guys. That would be the way that I would describe it. But also like there's the cognitive load piece that we just started getting into. And why would, you know, I, I would like to know personally why Dave Bame was pulled into this episode specifically. I'll jump in first. So we, uh, yeah, there wasn't necessarily, um, we were working on this and said, you know, who would be great. Dave Bain. It's just that uh, anytime we can get Dave Bain to comment on anything, we, we get him. So, um, I reached out to him earlier and just said, Hey, we're focused. We have a season. We're focusing on skill acquisition. And, um, this is just, we asked him the same question. What do you think the hardest skill to do in sports is? And then it, it's, um, his answer just sort of led us down this path. And by the way, his answer had to do with skiing and moguls. And that's where the name speed bumps come from. But yeah, this episode is really basically more of an expansion. So in the first in flick of the wrist, we went over a lot of, like I said, the, the basic essential concepts you would learn in motor learning. Um, this episode, we really started to drill down into the perceptual and psychological substrate. So what we're talking about is that, you know, when people think of exercise, they think about building bigger muscles or muscles with more endurance. And, you know, you consider, you can consider that a substrate muscular strength, muscular endurance, but there's another component, exactly what PJ was just talking about when it comes to exercise and your ability to make decisions and perform skills, which is what's happening cognitively. And when you're making, when, uh, what's happening cognitively is highly influenced by what's happened, like your sensory system. So what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling. And then on the other side, psychological substrates, your level of arousal or lack thereof at any given time, all of those are factoring in ultimately your decision-making, which is going to affect your skill performance. So this episode, we kind of went deeper into those concepts and introduced them in a way um, in the training environment, because I think it's fairly common for people to do some of the stuff in sports training, but mm -hmm. not necessarily thinking about like, oh, well, how could I use a knee extension and, you know, try to alter the visual environment or try to alter sound or, you know, so it's fairly uncommon to take this type of approach into the training environment. So the other half of the episode was talking about how in a controlled environment, like the training environment, where the risk can be, you know, fairly reasonably low, you can augment the, the other end of the exercise experience by changing things about the environment to help someone develop some of these substrates. This is the first episode that we actually asked the question, what is the most difficult skill in sports? 
right? This this is where we introduced it. The first episode, we just got into the, the idea of skill. This one is where we posed the question. And that was, you know, we all offered our opinion on that. And then, you know, Dave was talking about mogul scheme. And really, it's about the variability of the conditions in which you're performing. That's what this comes down to, variability. And how do we manage that. And there is this perceptual thing. And and we got into this concept of selective attention, which means really focusing on the things that we need to focus on. In a practical setting, it's really interesting because as trainers, we often bombard our clients with information, knowingly or not. We talk to them about stuff. We give them cues. We're constantly telling them what to do while they're doing it. It's information that they probably don't really even need. And for the most part, are probably ignoring. So the question is, what does somebody focus on? What that's called selective attention, gathering the the most important information that you need in order to perform something. So we were talking about things like that. That's the perceptual substrates, those prerequisites that we need in order to perform if you're not paying attention to the right thing, if you're a basketball player and you're at the free throw line at the end of a game and you're focused on the scoreboard and the crowd and people waving and all this other stuff and you're not focusing on the rim, well, you're not going to hit the shot. So we, we talk about how do we process this information and how does that impact our ability to perform? <clears throat> and that gets into what is the most difficult skill in sport. So... That's kind of where we went with that. And um, the idea of a psychological substrate was sort of taken up in the next episode in the flow. Yeah. Um, And I'll just add one more thing is that I went and looked up the paper that was referred uh, with Dave Bame and about perception and time and fatigue. Uh Uh-huh. And then um, I didn't know it. We then I had a conversation with a uh, like a strength and conditioning coach for mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. and that topic definitely came up. <laughs> so that was also uh, published right around the time on Think Fit Be Fit. So I thought that was just like a really cool, uh, you know, connection between the two shows. Yeah, that deserves a quick mention. So it's around the eleven thirty ish minute into the podcast if you want to click on that but dave is explaining his current research which is looking at how many events happen in a period of time and what that does to fatigue Mm -hmm. and what he's coming back with is that the more events that happen within a period of time the more fatigued someone gets and so um it's really interesting to me because when i think of it um you know i think of something like I think that's part of what's happening with, let's say like a quarterback in the NFL that like Mm -hmm. always seems to be like a second late on his passes. Like just the number of events that he has to process in order to get the ball to the right person at the right time, you know, like it's just fatiguing to this person. Um, But when I think about it in terms of, and we'll get into this later in the season, cueing and feedback, what we do in the gym as trainers, the amount of cueing and feedback you give someone can make it seem like it's a lot of events if they have to do even something relatively simple. So I thought it was a very interesting takeaway. And if anyone wants to listen to exactly what Dave is talking about, like I said, it's around 1130-ish of the episode. 
Yeah, one last quick point about that. And I mentioned, we mentioned this in the episode, there is a, a researcher in, in the UK, Michael Duncan, who did some research where he's looking at um, exertion and decision-making. And what they're discovering is that when you're performing at very high levels of exertion, as measured by percent max heart rate, when you push yourself to the extreme and you're exerting yourself at a very high level, the ability to make decisions is actually starting to diminish. Mm -hmm. So the harder you're performing, the harder you're working, the less capable you are of making effective, successful decisions. And so we can train for that too. So it's just a thought that fatigue, exertion, decision-making, these are all interconnected and they have to be part of a training protocol. Hello, Jennifer here. If you're enjoying this episode and are hungry for more mental reps about exercising efficiently and effectively, make sure to check out the other shows in our network, Peach Pit Fitness and Fitness for Consumption. We explore it all from celebrity workout trends to peer-reviewed research. Focus on what really matters, synthesizing accurate information into meaningful action for you and your clients. Enhance your fitness mindset and process by listening to all Think Fit Be Fit podcast at thinkfitbefitpodcast.com or on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for your support and enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, if that that definitely is getting my wheels spinning. Uh, so it's time it should. to move on to the third <laughs> episode. Well, you know, we definitely have to come back to this. Uh, you know, I I promise the audience that this is an ongoing conversation and we will definitely continue with this one. For sure. So we have our third is mm-hmm. um, In the Flow with Susie Sotir. Mm-hmm. And that delightful woman, first of all, and very, um, yeah, I just, I thought that her perspective was like, it's just, it was a good dose of like authority on this. Cause a lot of people talk and talk about flow, but it was really, I thought this was a, a great take on it. And, you know, I obviously respect the content and all the stuff that went into it. So I'll let you guys take it from here. Cause it, it was yeah, like I said, this one stands out where you could just uh, send this to someone. They wouldn't have to know a whole lot about motor skill or mm-hmm. performance, and they would really enjoy this episode, I feel mm-hmm. like. Yeah, well, Gigi mentioned psychological substrates, and, and this is the idea that our level of skill is influenced by our emotional state, our psychological state. You know, and we brought up in the conversation, what happened to Naomi Osaka, um, Simone Biles, you know, these are very, very highly skilled world-class athletes that were really affected by their emotional state. And Susie Sotir is a sports psychologist. Uh, She's a colleague of mine. She's also a triathlon coach. And, you know, we got into this discussion of psychological readiness mostly coping ability. Mm. So coping is really what it comes down to is when when people perform at a high level, they're able to cope with stress. And so how stressed are we and how are we managing that? We Then we discuss flow. And flow 
is a concept that was developed by a researcher named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And I know it, mm-hmm. when you look at the way it's spelled, you would never think it's pronounced that way, but yeah. it's, it is um, what it is. And, and people have heard of it, but it's been misinterpreted. And I think there is this common thinking that in order to be in flow, and really basically what flow is, it's a, it's a level of concentration where you can eliminate distraction and be super focused on what you're doing. You're in flow. And there's this common thinking that in order to do that, you have to put yourself in a life-threatening condition. And that couldn't be farther from the truth because piano players can be in flow. So how are they in a life-threatening condition when they're sitting at a piano? What, they're mm-hmm. going to get a splinter that's going to give them blood poisoning? Mm-hmm. I, you know. So what we wanted to do is get deeper into that to really understand what flow is. And Susie just gave us great input on coping, being ready psychologically, how she prepares people mm-hmm. for that, how she deals with people under stress. I thought it was a great episode. Yeah, and PJ, just to back up your point about flow. So when you look at the actual definition, what it says in terms of, you know, the complexity of whatever it is you're doing is that it just can't be too low and it actually can't be too high because that seems to knock you out of flow. So it's got to be enough of a challenge to where you're engaged. And, you know, that's a, we talk about bandwidth a lot. So there's, you know, there's a reasonable bandwidth there. So yeah, that's, that's arousal. I mean, yeah, you, you yeah. brought up the point arousal. I mean, arousal is a good thing and arousal is a bad thing. If you're not aroused enough, you're not going to perform. And if you're over aroused, then you're stressed and you can't perform. Well, so what my, the best takeaway, so there's a couple of things that I really thought about after the episode. And one was exactly that. So there's this narrative and you'll trust me, if you watch sports this year, you will see it when it comes to the playoff, every team does this thing where they're always like, well, the pressure is on the other team. We don't feel any pressure. And it's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. guys trying to convince themselves, men or women, trying to convince themselves that like winning this championship, there is no pressure. And they're trying to pretend that they have no pressure. And look, we know that there's pressure. And so what Susie was talking about in the episode is that, you know, high level performers, they feel the pressure. They just, they, they, they learn better coping skills. They've, they've acquired better, better coping skills, which in and of itself is a skill. It's not, a, it's not a motor skill, but it's a cognitive skill. So, and I love that because like, I'm not a coach and I don't, I don't coach athletics. You know, I've, I work with people one-on-one, but if I was training a team of any sort, and it could be kids five years old to professional athletes, and this is just my opinion, I would never try to convince them of like, oh, just try to convince yourself there's no pressure. I would say, look, lean into the pressure. There's pressure here. There's there's an outcome that's difficult that you're trying to achieve, but let's work on like building up the coping skills. So she spoke about that. That's what she does in her practice. The other thing was that frankly, and PJ mentioned um, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, like I I don't even know how to start to have this conversation. Again, I'm not a coach, so I'm not really in these type of um, situations. But honestly, I don't know what how to even start to handle something like that. If someone came to me and said, "Coach, I just I can't do it today," like I do, you just say okay? Like do you try mm-hmm. to prod them a little bit, like. So she gave us some very um, practical. So she was like, well, look, when a player, when they think a player has a concussion, 
you know, they don't just like automatically assume he does and they automatically just tell him to go back in. There's a protocol. So you answer some questions, you go through some things, you make an evaluation. So I had never heard that. And that's so just simple and practical to me that if I ever was in that situation, um, I would learn beforehand, okay, so if someone is in distress and they come up to me, here's this protocol that people use. And let me at least start with, with that because otherwise, like, just speaking for myself, I would have no idea how to handle those type of conversations. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely something I thought a lot about um, afterwards. Well, the the whole coping conversation is fascinating. And, you know, I, I was able to, what is it? Uh, not stage, but like observe a, a number of training sessions with a sports psychologist with uh, younger teen athletes, like 12 and 11, and then older, you know, at, uh, 17, 18 years old. And the coping thing came up multiple times because yeah, it's a skill. And I think that was, uh, an interesting takeaway, the, you know, what you were saying, I wasn't, um, I was also fascinated by the the idea that you guys were talking about emotional and psychological substrates in training and that was just something really unique that stuck out about this episode in particular yeah i mean you know one's emotional and psychological state affect their ability to perform i mean the classic example is the yips in golf i mean jen you're a golfer so you stand over a three-foot putt you know, and, and you hit it two feet wide and six feet long, like, wait a minute, how did that happen? It was a three foot putt, but stress can do that to you. And so these are all things that weigh in and factor into skill. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to hear all these perspectives on these contributing factors and what we can do, what can you do in a training environment that can help people with their coping. Now, I don't have a patented answer for that. And like Gigi, I don't know what questions to ask. That's not my field. But can we do things? Can we change the level of stress in a training environment so that we can help people to start to acquire some better coping skills? And I think that really was what we were trying to get at. And I also believe this is one of the more downloaded episodes of the season. Oh. I was about to double check that, but it looks like my interface just changed on Lipson. So we are not going to do that. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll take your word for it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And all right. So are we ready to go on to uh, episode four? I think so. Very cool episode, and I appreciated it because we're now really moving into, we've definitely moved into the performance aspect of the whole entire season, and you had some really interesting guests that we already mentioned with Michelle, but it was just interesting that the how different those two guests are mm -hmm. uh, and you know that we that there was just a lot to take away from you know everywhere from industry of 
high performance uh, and coaching inside of high, high different high performance environments and talking about environment and then performance and feedback. And so there was just a lot in this, in this conversation. So uh, what I took away most, most was about feedback in, in general. So, yeah. So this one for me was fun in particular, um, just because these are two friends of mine. And this one felt to me more like getting together at a restaurant and four people that are interested in the same, you know, area of something, just kind of having a conversation. Um, so this episode, Q Talent, so, you know, in reference to the episode was really about cueing and feedback and how we can use them in a training environment. And our two guests, Jen, to your point, were really kind of at polar opposites of what they do on a daily basis. So one of our guests, Dr. Nick Lee Parker, uh, who I mentioned earlier, is that the the head men's the the head coach for the men's <laughs> rowing team for Columbia, and our other our other guest Gregory Udan. Um, he's a researcher, he's a dancer, and he also does um, a very interesting type. He's a choreographer and a performer, and he specializes in an area where he works with people with um, disabilities. So he will do partner dancing with people. Um, that may have Parkinson's or some other disability. And so obviously the cueing and feedback between these two populations, you know, on some levels couldn't be different. And so, and then you have both my experience and PJ's experience. So the, the really interesting thing about this is that, you know, I felt like that we we didn't get to one right answer about the way to do everything, which is great. You know, there's just multiple perspectives on, you know, given the, the problem you're trying to solve with whatever your situation is, um, there's multiple ways of going about it. And so the nuts and bolts of it, we spoke about. So cueing are these short, concise phrases that you do to try to prime somebody so they they have an understanding of what to do. And the feedback is once it's done, you give them, you can give them feedback about the quality of the performance, or you can give them feedback more on the quantitative side, like, okay, you did 10 reps or you did this in five seconds. So we introduced again, like just some of these basic concepts you'll learn in motor learning, knowledge of, uh, knowledge of results, knowledge of performance. Um, and then from there, it's just a really interesting uh, discussion to me about, you know, how, um, you know, you can take what the literature is, is showing us in terms of cueing and feedback and where to direct your attention. But, you know, it, you also have to take that and apply it real life to what you're doing and how that might change things. One of the things we talk about with skill acquisition, one of the foundations of skill acquisition is a cognitive substrate. And a cognitive substrate means understanding the goal of the movement. If you don't understand what the goal of the movement is, then it's very hard to formulate an action plan in order to accomplish the goal. We sometimes put that into the context of contracting muscles. Here, squeeze these muscles, squeeze those muscles. Well, that doesn't help someone understand what the goal of the movement is. So at the very beginning, the very start of someone's development of a skill, they're in what we call the cognitive stage of development, which is to understand what the goal of the movement is before they can do anything. They have to figure that out. So when we cue, 
the idea is to provide that information to someone very succinctly, very clearly. Here's your movement goal. And so a big part of this conversation was about that and how we do that. And also relating to Gabrielle Wolf's work in the constraint action hypothesis using external cueing mechanisms, an external point of focus. And we got into that conversation. Then I thought the, the interesting part of the conversation then was the feedback. And people don't necessarily parse out feedback between knowledge of performance and knowledge of results. And the knowledge of performance is, did I do what I wanted to do? The knowledge of result is, did I achieve what I wanted to achieve? And sometimes we conflate those and sometimes we ignore them. And sometimes we're not really giving people the right kind of feedback. Well, you didn't do it. <laughs> well, maybe they did what they wanted to do and they didn't do it. Or maybe they didn't do what they wanted to do and they did it. And that's a challenge. And you know, the example of that, going back to golf, is you stand up on the tee box and you make the most god-awful swing that you could ever imagine. I mean, ugly, ugly swing. And somehow the club face squares up to the ball on impact and it goes 300 yards down the middle of the fairway. So knowledge mm -hmm. of result is, hey, I just hit a great shot. Knowledge of performance is, whoa, do you think you can repeat what you just did? Because achieving that goal consistently is the definition of skill. And the answer is no, that was a mistake. It was a mistake, compounding mistakes, but somehow it worked out. Well, you can't do that again. Mm -hmm. So getting into this idea of what kind of feedback we provide relative to performance or result is very important to the performer's understanding of what they're doing and how they need to modify it. Mm. The rabbit hole I want to go down <laughs> is the in the context of, you know, exercise ex execution. I think that would be really interesting. And what kind of feedback we're getting in that, in, in those environments. The other thing is, uh, this made me realize that, you know, that example you just gave of 300 yards down the fairway, how you did it and all that and getting the feedback and, the knowledge of results, um, that, that probably is one of the toughest things to work with as a coach, I would think one, uh, you know, as far as, uh, recognizing your coaching opportunity, right. And being able to use it in the, in the right way. Right. So, and it might not be difficult in the sense of, you know, uh, what's on the line, but if we look at it in the context of, um, you know, development, and this is where that conversation went, when we look at it in the context of development and really having the, the whole, you know, athletic, not the timeline, but they're, they're all of their development, all of their skill acquisition, then it really does matter. Yeah, Jen, I, I just want to bring up a quick point exactly to that. So around 27 minutes into the episode, um, PJ makes a very salient point, as he often does. Um, and we're talking about these stages of learning. Uh, and he just mentioned, so cognitive is the first stage. Then it goes to associative and finally automated. Um, but what he was saying in this conversation is that when he's got someone in the cognitive stage, he tries to, his initial Q is more in line of what to do 
versus how to do it, which may sound like it's a very subtle difference, but it's really not. And it has a, a really large effect on the ultimate skill acquisition because I think what happens is most trainers initially, and it's a it makes sense, like if you're just starting out, I think you just think that in order to qualify like the rate you're charging, you should almost be doing the exercise for the person. Like you're touching them so much, like you're, t- you're giving them everything about how to do it verbally. You're giving them tactile feedback about how to do it. At the same time, you're just bombarding them with cues and feedback. And uh, this is a good episode to listen to. And I'm speaking from experience because that's what I probably did my first 10 years of being a trainer. Mm. Um, and what you learn <laughs> down the road, if you're lucky enough, is that that actually robs someone of the skill acquisition because you're you're doing it for them. So cueing in, in regards to what to do and then letting them do that and then providing some feedback that can shift things slightly if you know, if there are things to that, that need some, I don't I hate to use the word correction. So, but if, <laughs> if there's something that you feel is outside of a bandwidth that you would like to see, you're uh, going to enhance it. Yeah. Mm. So there you go. Enhanced. <laughs> we we want to play with people's psychological substrates. We don't want to be correcting them. So mm. we'll enhance it. Yeah. Gigi's right. I mean, we, we too often just tell people how to do things and Mm. we should just tell them what to do and let them figure it out. Mm. And, you know, more often Um, than not, they do. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's why this podcast, as the kids say, it slaps. It's a good one. (laughs) It slaps. It's like, I think it's like a knee slapper. It's like, Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just learned what a, I just, I just learned what a Stan is. A Stan <laughs> is yeah. uh, an obsessed fan. So, yeah. All right. I've got stands out there. Okay. <laughs> there we go. So, the next episode, I, so we have, so we're going to go the forest through the trees. Uh, and what uh, is interesting about the whole, you know, arch of the season is I think this is, where things get complex. I mean, we already mentioned some layered subjects, but to me, uh, this is where it gets complex. This is also where it gets more practical, really utterly practical. And I have my thoughts on that, why that is, but I'll let you guys take it away and maybe, um, you know, what was the forest through the trees all about? So the, you know, we've all heard of that saying, and just to sort of encapsulate it before we get into some of the details of it, trainers, coaches are just too concerned about people perfecting movement and controlling body position and putting your spine here and your knee here and making sure that every element of the movement is actual actually perfectly executed and that position is so highly controlled and what they're missing out on what where they're not seeing the forest through the trees is that all of that hyper control creates super inefficiency it just makes it difficult to move and so the the topic that we're introducing here is the topic of efficiency because that's part of the definition of skill. 
as we said, the last part of the definition of skill is to move with an economy of effort. Economy of effort means it's smooth, it's fluid, it's effortless, right? That's what economy means. That's what efficiency means, that we're just doing what we need to do in order to perform the skill at a high level and nothing more than that because it's wasteful and it's actually inhibitory. So the whole concept here was let's stop worrying about the minutiae of movement and start focusing on how to get people to move more economically with more efficiency, which can then lead to a whole host of benefits. So that's the overarching theme around this particular episode. Yeah. And then, yeah, I would say, so if someone's listening, they hear PJ say effortless. Well, does that mean like I should never like break a sweat at the gym? No. So what we're saying is that if you do there and you'll have to listen to the episode so you can hear exactly what we're talking about in more detail, which is we actually use an example of a lunge. Um, So depending on the way you set up the conditions for an exercise and uh, you consider where the center of mass might be for the person, any reaction forces involved, you can set up an exercise which just makes the movement itself more efficient based on the physics of it. And so if you can become efficient at the exercise, to me, that gives you the green light to load it more, to, to play with the velocity to So it's, it's effortless in one sense and where it's, it's so smooth that, you know, it, it looks that way and it feels that way. But at the same time, you can really start to challenge yourself with heavier loads, higher velocities because it's so smooth. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, we're also the, the beginning of the episode, we talk about this idea of co-contraction mm-hmm. and that's really the inefficiency of activity is that co-contraction leads to stiffness mm-hmm. right it makes it difficult to move so when we put people in conditions where we're asking them to become unstable for example the brain's response to that is to try to stabilize the joints and to stabilize the posture well how do you do that by stiffening everything, by contracting all the muscles around those joints. That's how you stabilize them. And so if all the muscles around joints are contracting, it makes it really hard to move. Mm. You know, know, try moving where everything is contracting. It's just really, really hard because you're fighting against yourself. If you're trying to, we talk about my dissertation research. If, Mm -hmm. If you're trying to flex your elbow, and your triceps is in a very high state of contraction, that's a high level of co-contraction between the biceps and triceps, the joint doesn't want to move. You're in an isometric state. So the more you co-contract, the stiffer you get, and the more difficult it is to move, and therefore you're highly inefficient. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is let's not do that to people. Let's not get them contracting muscles that are unnecessarily contracting. Use what you need to use in order to move as smoothly as you can, and then you'll perform better. And then that became the conversation around the lunge, which is how do we position somebody in space in order to be able to do a lunge more efficiently? And PJ, that just reminds me, one of the the most important things about this episode too was, and we speak about it in the episode is that 
you had a definition of strength that I had never heard before. So if you look at any text, typically when you look at the definition of strength, it's the ability to generate force. And then you said that your definition of strength was the ability to apply force. And so in the episode, I use this example, and I was actually just talking about it this morning with a client for another reason. So um, he was showing me a video of this CrossFit person who like this person looks like a video game character you've never seen a more <laughs> muscular ripped human being and but he's not that for being a professional crossfitter like he's not that great he's okay mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. obviously when you look at him he's not having a problem generating force like to get that big even if you have the best genetics like you've got to be able to generate some force to get the tissues that big um, but being able to apply force, just like PJ was saying, with the right amount of co-contraction at a given time, that's where skill really comes in. So it's a really, again, it sounds subtle, but it's a really huge difference because generating force is one thing, but being able to skillfully apply it is something very different. And that's really what skill comes down to. Yeah, there's, I, there's another piece of this episode that was... I thought uh, a bit eye-opening uh, where there were some insights about reciprocal inhibition and how we may use that in, uh, you know, a, like, uh, like understanding skill and co-contraction and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I would love to know if the audience, because it's something I'm interested in. I know it's something PJ is interested in and actually did his whole dissertation looking at things like that. So if the audience can give us some feedback and is interested in a whole episode on reciprocal inhibition, we would love to do it. Um, okay. But yeah, let us want know. To make sure that, yeah. Do you stand for? Yeah, please. Reciprocal yeah, inhibition? let us know. Okay. Let's, uh, okay. So then we have, I thought, I thought this one, the way that I would describe the whole truth, the next episode, is that it was a the more abstract of the season, you know, and I thought that it was um, it, it just felt like a different take on, you know, what I you know I didn't I I've never paid much attention to whole and part practice, so for me it was there was a, like a lot of learning for these two episodes for on my own end of just, you know, listening. So I'll let you guys take this one. I, cause that was my feedback. I was like, wow, that's abstract. And I'm really thinking a, a bit about how all this stuff applies and how it works. Yeah. So that's a fair point. Um, so the idea was, as we were going through the season, okay, so we introduced what skill is. So now listeners know what skill is. And then we introduced, okay, here are the ingredients that go into skill. Cognitive load, you know, perceptual awareness, um, you know, different factors. Then we spoke about, okay, so now that you, you have a skill, we've talked about some applications for it. Now let's get into the cueing and feedback. So now you have, know how to give the cueing and feedback. So now once you know all that stuff, okay, so how do you set up a practice schedule or a training schedule? So that's where the idea of going over part and whole practice came in. So yeah, Jen, to your point, looking at motor learning literature and then trying to extract that into like what's meaningful to someone that's going to the gym and using a knee extension or just doing a bicep curl, 
I'll admit it's not a perfect fit, you know, but, uh, and sometimes it's hard to look at some of these studies um, and say, oh, okay, that's a perfect application for like how I would set up a resistance training program. But, um, you know, we definitely thought it was worth knowing and going through some of the research on part and whole practice. And there are some applications you can take away from understanding at least how researchers would look at this. And then if in fact you're doing things in an exercise setting where, um, and especially if you're a trainer or coach of any sort, it's good to know because you definitely, and um, you definitely probably have a way that you've um, heuristically found that you like doing things, but it's also good to hear, okay, so here's what the researchers would say in terms of how to parse something out based on certain criteria. And, um, you know, so we went over some of the, the research in that area. If, if you look at what Michelle was talking about earlier, all of the intricate details of rowing, Mm -hmm. The the idea of whole verse part is when you're coaching somebody, take that movement, take that entire sequence of movement in order to propel a boat through the water. The idea of whole verse part is, do you practice the entire thing all at once? Mm -hmm. Do you do the entire movement and work on that? Or do you take specific parts of the movement, work on that in isolation, perfect it, and then add it to the other parts that are all being worked on independently, put them together, and then finally have the whole. And the research is really interesting in what it's discovered over time. Some research says it's better to do the whole thing at once. Because even if you do the parts and perfect them, you still have to put them back together and create a whole again. So it really comes down to how long it takes you to acquire the skill, how well you retain the skill, and then how well you transfer that to other skills. And so that's really what this gets down to is in looking at what do we do with an exercise? Can we break an exercise into individual parts and focus on just those parts and then put them together? Or is it best to do the entire thing in one movement and then just let somebody develop it? There's lots of conversation, again, about retention, transfer. So it's really interesting when you break apart movements that way and then look at what we can do as practitioners in order to help people develop and retain those skills. Was there, you know, anything that like of left out or uh, brought back into the conversation on this one? So PJ, do you want to mention something about subroutines? Because I think subroutines is an interesting component of this kind of uh, what looks like it might be whole practice, but it's kind of almost like a hybrid between the two. Well, actually, if, if there's an opportunity to work on a piece of a skill, so, you know, we've talked about lunges and sometimes when we look at people doing lunges, all we see is them lunging forward and lunging back. And we probably focus on whether their knee is over their toe. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we can do is we can look at a lunge as being a, uh, a summation of a series of subroutines, right? So they're stepping mm-hmm. forward and lowering your body toward the floor, falling toward the floor as a routine. 
you know, your lead foot landing, establishing a base of support and then decelerating toward the floor is another routine. Stabilizing at the bottom is a routine. Pushing down into the floor in order to reaccelerate back to your standing position is a routine. And then coming to a stop at the end is a routine. Those are all individual routines that comprise the parts of a lunge. So if we understand that, and if we know that some of those routines are probably less critical than others, if we could identify the routines that are most critical to the performance of the task and focus on those, chances are we can help someone become better at doing that particular type of movement. So that would be part learning, right? But the idea in part learning is to identify the critical part. And that's where the subroutines come in. And we talk about that in the episode. And by the way, I think that links really nicely back to the episode we had on cueing and feedback. So in a practical setting, let's say you're seeing something in that lunge and you've identified a subroutine somewhere in there where you feel like, you know, I'd, I'd like to see if this could be changed slightly. So, you know, the first step would be just before you change, you know, just to cue it differently. At least that's what I would do. I would just try to cue something differently, mm. give someone a little bit of time to see, okay, let's see if they just kind of resolve it on their own. Um, mm. Give some feedback about it, cue it again, and then just see if that's enough. Or, uh, or if I do have to break something down, there could, there's certainly times where there is um, a need to break something down. You might have to, if you have the toolkit to do it, look at particular muscles or some joint motion to figure out why something is looking a certain way. But um, using cueing and feedback is a is a great start to start to understand what you might be seeing in a subroutine and seeing if there is something that you need to actually take out and resolve on its own before you see this movement, mm. you know, performed. Yeah, one last thing about it is we distinguish between putting a movement into just a sequence and working mm -hmm. on the sequence versus true part learning. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a movement and you say, well, first we're going to, let's say it's a snatch. Well, first we're going to do the first pull and then we're going to do the second pull and then we're going to do, you know, the drop and then we're going to do the catch. And you do all of that at once, but you just do it in this in sequence. That's not part learning. That's just putting things in sequence. Part learning means you come into the gym and you do the first pull for three days until you've perfected the first pull. Then you go into the gym after that and you do the first pull and the second pull together. And you, you, that's part learning, not just putting a movement into a sequence of steps. Hmm. Because we still have a couple episodes left in this season to review, but we're running short on time. Let's move to center of attention, which is, it's just like perfectly arches, I think, like, as I was saying before, like this whole season and how it lays itself out, how you all laid it out. So uh, let's go into center of attention and, you know, obviously it was special because it was a visual podcast, a video mm -hmm. cast, mm -hmm. I don't know, and that it, it also, um, it continued off of these other conversations on efficiency and economy. And so I'll let you guys take it from there. Yeah, this was actually Gigi's idea. So we had spent a couple of episodes talking about economy, efficiency. We got into the idea of lunges and how getting the center of mass in the right position 
for a lunge is really critical. So the, the issue with a lunge isn't where is your knee? The issue is how is your upper body position? Because that's changing the location of your center of mass and the location of your center of mass is what's determining how efficient you are. So I think the biggest flaw with the way lunges are being taught is not relative to the knee, it's what you're doing with your upper body, your spine. And all of the people are coaching you to stay up straight. Well, that's a huge mistake because that pushes your center of mass way back and that creates real problems. And so you really wanna be leaning forward from the hips and, and it's if you were gonna pick an object up off the floor in front of your foot, that's how to do it. But we needed to illustrate that. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we put this video episode together, which shared some illustrations as well as some video clips from our lab at Cybex uh, in which we show the ground reaction forces that arise when we're doing lunges in this upright position versus a forward position. What happens when you let your knee go in front of your toe versus try to keep it over your ankle with your back straight. And we're actually able to demonstrate through these video illustrations where the line of force is or the ground reaction force, the magnitude of that force, which is significantly lower when you're keeping your body upright, um, as well as the loads that are being applied to the back leg and how inefficient that is. So this was an opportunity for us to show, illustrate it for people so that they could see what we were trying to explain in those previous two episodes. So I credit Gigi for launching that idea because he said, look, this is really interesting stuff, but sometimes people have to see it. And he was right. So we put that episode together. Yeah. And beyond interesting, I think it's important. And, you know, I don't, like I said before, I wouldn't want to be disingenuous to if I was coaching a team about pressure or stress. And I don't want to be disingenuous here. Jen, to your point, this is not, you know, this is fairly complex when you get into understanding reaction forces, understanding tangents from those reaction forces. But look, I firmly believe every one of our listeners, anyone that knows how to multiply can understand a reaction force and it can understand torque if they put some time in. And so hopefully these episodes will be the initial sort of introduction to people to understanding this stuff. Because in my opinion, to, to be your own advocate in an exercise setting. If you can walk into a gym and you've got a basic understanding of torque and what we went through last season, which is trying to describe it and how torque changes based on you know external resistance and other factors. And now you can start to put that in concert with reaction forces that might be happening. You know a lot about the stress that's being placed on your body when you're exercising. And frankly, sadly, it's not, <laughs> for a lack of education, it, it's not for lack of intellect. Mm -hmm. It's just that this isn't commonly taught in personal training certifications or your typical fitness classes or anything. Most trainers, even professional trainers, don't know about this stuff just because it's not part of the the syllabus. It's not part of the program. So, yeah, um, yeah this episode to me, like talking about this stuff, can feel very esoteric, and I feel like if you haven't been through it, I think you would, the, the concepts would make sense when you're listening to it, 
but you really have to see it displayed visually to be like, ah, okay, that's what they're talking about. I get it. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I think it's really important. And to whatever extent this podcast is helping make the world a better place, I really feel like these episodes are the ones that are really moving the needle to, to give people the tools so they can really, really make a good critical decision uh make good to apply good critical thinking to their decision making in the gym and if you know if, if for nothing else this was providing the scientific evidence for the arguments that we were making right. in the first those first two or previous two episodes hmm. right we wanted to show that we're not just making this up like here are the data mm-hmm. see for yourself and so that's important because sometimes people you know, they see what they see, they read what they read, uh, which also is part of our fine print series. <laughs> um, but we felt that, you know what, let's show you. And so here, see for yourself. Yeah. I mean, without operating with that type of, you know, critical thought, it's, um, it's result, it, it's given kind of pathetic results in the fitness industry as indicated by your next episode, which is the fine print. As a, there's some major problems that you all brought up that went, it seems like went unnoticed by people. Um, I have a lot to say about that episode and we are running out of time. So I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I might just have to leave our audience to got to go, got to go listen to the, all the fine print episodes and this one, especially. Well, we, we think it's an important one yeah. and just real briefly, cause I know we are running out of time. This paper that we review kind of launched an attitude, not just an opinion, but an attitude towards certain types of exercises and it was very, very influential when it was uh, published. And I was at a meeting in, you know, with orthopedic surgeons and everybody was up in arms about it. And when you go back and look at it, there are lots of issues. So, you know, I would really encourage our listeners to listen to this episode. It's the fine print. It's called the fear of shear. And, you know, please listen weigh in, give us your feedback, and then we'll talk about it the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Real briefly, I'll just say the reason why people lunge in this particular way they do has a lot to do with this paper <laughs> and thinking about sheer forces on the ACL. And so oh, the irony. This, is, this is a really good paper to <laughs> acquaint yourself with if you want to know the history of where all this, the why, why you think about if you want to learn why you probably think about the lunge in a certain way or been coached to, this is where it starts. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, thanks for publishing all these great episodes. Thank on you, Jen, as always. Yeah, it's an absolute honor. And I do think that this podcast does make a difference in the world. So we will measure that impact, I know. <laughs> well, thanks, well, Jen. Let's hope this network as a whole, we're we're all doing our part here. So yeah, yeah, thanks, Jen. Thanks for having us. Thanks for helping us. My pleasure. Bye, guys. All right, bye. Hi, friends. I hope you loved the show in season three of Fitness for Consumption. And by the way, thank you for being a part of our network. 
head on over to our newsletter at thinkfitbefitpodcast.com or our Instagram page at thinkfitbefit underscore podcast to be a part of our awesome giveaways for our other two shows, Think Fit Be Fit and Peach Pit Fitness. These prizes are valued at $1,000 and we know firsthand how they can optimize fitness. Don't miss these special opportunities to win and dive deeper into peak performance. Best of luck and I can't wait to see who wins.